3: Welcome to another edition of Bumps and Thumps, The Talk of Wrestling. I'm Brian Ferguson. My guest today is a returning guest, one of my favorite guys in the world, AWA historian, wrestling historian, legend in the AWA and historian world. Welcome back, Mr. George Shire. George, thanks for coming back
0: on, my friend. Good to see you. It's always good to be on your show, Brian. You know, we talk about uh, me coming on time again, mm-hmm. and I like it. So I love well, talking old wrestling.
3: I do, too. You know, and so I, I love having you on because, you know, you're a straight shooter. You don't. If something's wrong or I, if I don't know it and I, or I say something wrong, you're there to say, uh, that's not how it really went down. This is how it went down. So today, though, we're going to have a special Treat, I guess I want to say for everybody we're going to talk about tag team wrestling and I talked to George I reached out to him about it and uh, first I wanted to get your take on how did tag team wrestling really come about in this in our business how did it kind of you know single we talk about Hans Schmidt Frank Gotch all these legends but the tag team seem to kind of get put to the side. So how did tag team wrestling really come about?
0: Well, now you've just opened the door for me to give the cheap plug. Ah, for, the book. For Minnesota's Golden Age of Wrestling, available on Amazon. All right. Uh, to answer your question, the, um, that was impromptu, by the way. I just happened to have the book sitting here, honest. <laughs> uh, tag teams, as it is, as I stated in my book, tag team wrestling actually started around as early as the 1930s. Okay. And they were out in the Pacific Northwest territory. And really the concept was, you know, promoters kind of figured out that if we have two guys that can go at it in hell bent on destroying one another in a grudge program together, Mm -hmm. and we can draw money with it. Well, if we put each guy with a partner and create this storyline and create this hatred and this rivalry and this competition towards a championship, we can, you know, double the pleasure, double the fun. Yeah. And so that's really where it started. It, It was kind of by accident. I will tell you that the original concept of a tag team match, and this is where the word comes in tag. Originally they had to tag one another in and out of the ring the two partners and the referee would want, you know, have to enforce those rules that wrestler outside the ring can't come in until his partner tags him and he gets to come in. Right. Well, then the fun could start because the the, the, the one good guy tagged off and the referee didn't see it. So the partner's coming in. So the referee's trying to get him out. And then the bad guys are double teaming the good guy in the ring and they're getting away with stuff. I mean, it was all about the psychology. Yeah. The other thing about the original tag team concept, which got lost through the years, was there was a rope that was on the corner of the turnbuckle, yes. draped over you know, maybe this long, and the guy outside the ring had to hold on to that tag rope, hang on to it through the course of the match. That was the idea, and he couldn't come in, and he couldn't let go of that rope until he was tagged in properly. And it worked both ways for the heels and the villains. But usually the heels ended up being the ones that the referee didn't see the tag. And, you know, the fans are yelling and booing the poor referee and the psychology of. Yeah. And, and the other thing that was important about the early tag teams is just like singles wrestling. You had to give the fans a reason to want to see these two teams do battle. Yeah. So the ideas over the course of the decades were the list was endless. You had guys that uh, claimed to be brothers. You had guys that were of ethnic origins, and so that, that's really where it all started. It kind of evolved over the decades after World War II. Yeah, that. And so you're getting into the very late 40s and in, into the 50s, mm-hmm. uh, tag team wrestling just took off in all territories around the country.
3: Yeah, it's interesting that uh, it started actually in the 30s, as you said, and um, I, I've watched some older matches from the late 50s on the, uh, the archives. It's on a YouTube channel. With the Kowalskis brothers, uh, you know, Hans Schmidt, uh, Wilbur Schneider, all those guys. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, they, you know, you watch them, you talk about that rope, it's there. You know, they're holding, the good guys, for the most part, are holding it. Uh, and that, that it, it is. So want to bring up some pictures, if you don't mind, and we could kind of go through that a little bit. Uh, if you're ready for
0: that. Right. I, I actually, um I sent you a few pictures. You did, which and I'm going to bring them may, up right now. Which may play into uh, some of the things that we can talk about today. So let's talk
3: about the wall here, this wall of fame here, the Wrestle Wall.
0: Well, I only thought that was appropriate because we are going to talk about tag teams. And uh, this is a wall that is, it's actually an old picture. I think this picture is about 10 years old now.
1: Okay. But it
0: uh is it was it's in my wrestling room and it featured tag teams. And as you look across the the four or the three rows that you can see clearly, mm-hmm. um, there are some very diverse, very interesting combinations. Uh, we got the uh, uh, the Torres brothers and uh, the Lasowski brothers. And we've got Brute Bernard and Skull Murphy on there and Mad dog, the and Baron von Raschke. And we got the Anderson brothers. And I mean, if you kind of get the theme, yeah. it was all about being a brother or, or being a, a hated heel and, yeah. or maybe an ethnic hero. And as I mentioned to you a minute ago, you know, when you look at the late forties, then into the fifties with world war two ending. Yes. And, Brian, I'm going to take you back to I think one of the earlier shows that I was on with you. Uh-huh. Um, you asked me how I got involved in wrestling, and I will always tell oh. the story that it was. I will always tell the story that it was um, in 1959 September when I was watching television mm-hmm. and I saw uh, wrestling on TV. But I also told you that my very first match. Yes. that I ever attended was yes. when I was six years old, and I went with my dad. Yes. And, it, you know, at six years old, here you go. This was the card, yes. the actual program. Yes. And it says, revenging Russians versus Japanese. And it was Mitsu Arakawa, Kinji Shibuya, against Ivan and Carol Kelmikoff. And at six years old, I learned a very valuable lesson, though I didn't realize it till a few years later. But These two teams were playing on fan emotion and World War II had ended less well, just about a decade earlier. We still in our minds in America, we still didn't like the Japanese Mm -hmm. because they were the cause of the war. The the Russians, they were still evil and they put them together in this match, two heels, and that was unique, of course, having yeah. two heel teams go at it. But here's where I learned the psychology, because you had two heel teams. And generally speaking, fans would be forced to pick a favorite in a heel versus heel match. Mm-hmm. But in this case, I think I remember telling you that when a, one of the Japanese guys would hit a Russian, fans would cheer and when one of the Russians would hit one of the Japanese, the fans would cheer. They didn't like either team. Yeah. Literally did not like either team. And it was kind of a, I think the fans were sitting there just hoping that the four of them just eliminate each other.
1: Yeah.
0: And so that was, that was an early lesson. But uh, I will tell you that the Russians, Ivan and Carol they were they were kind of the start of the brother tag team they okay. weren't real brothers right. and they weren't real russians yeah <laughs> you know two guys come together and claim to be russians and they had the longevity to go an entire decade together as a team wow. and with various offshoots they also between the two of them ivan and carol they also had a couple of other brothers that they put into the mix over the 10 years Okay. But till nineteen sixty-three, they wrestled in virtually every territory that was in existence in the fifties and the very early sixties.
1: Yeah.
0: Wow. So that tells you their drawing power. Yeah. And and longevity was important in those days. Yeah. The same the same could also be said for Mitsu and Kenji, because they off and on teamed together. Mm-hmm. And with various partners, uh, also carried on the "We Hate the Japanese" agenda of the 50s and 60s. Yeah. And uh, there you go. That's wow. that's how it kind of started for yeah. me in the Twin Cities. Yeah. This one here,
3: the the next one we're talking about, the Hawaiian Tag Team Champions, Tiny Mills and and and, and Stan Kowalski, uh, weren't they? If I remember correctly, weren't they the first AWA world tag team champions.
0: They were good memory.
3: Murder. Incorporated. Uh,
0: yes. and, and the reason I, I gave you this particular program page is because Stan and tiny came back to Minnesota, which again was the headquarters yeah. of the then NWA. And then in 1960, when it became a W a Minneapolis, Minnesota was the territory or the headquarters. So, what this program tells you is that when Tiny and Stan came back to Minneapolis, they were uh, revered as being not only international tag team champions, which they were billed at upon arrival, yeah. but they had actually toured together in 58 and 59 as a team in Australia, Japan, and in various other cities and territories around the country. So when they came back to Minneapolis, they were well-known. Yeah. And even though in the K Fab era, you know, a lot of fans wouldn't have heard of them, although they knew of Tiny and they knew of Stan here in the AWA territory because Tiny had been a mainstay here in the 50s as one of our top heels. Yeah. And then, of course, Stan, he was 10 years younger, give or take a year. He was 10 years younger. And uh, he started here in Minneapolis. Okay. So they came back recognized as international champions based on, and they were true in the, in the programs on the TV. They said they've traveled all over the world and they're here to uh, display their dominance to uh, AWA fans. Wow. And when Vern started the AWA, uh, Tiny and Stan were immediately changed from NWA champions to AWA champions and the rest was history. Yeah. I will point out when they were NWA, we will always clarify that the NWA never officially recognized any team as world champions, but various territories had NWA champions yes. all the time through the 50s and 60s. Yes, I and remember th- that was a promotional. That. Yeah. It was a promotional uh, tag yeah. team title.
3: Yeah, I remember we talked about that a few sessions back about tag team titles not recognized as as world titles, except in that territory. So,
0: yeah, interesting. So so when I'm watching in 1959 in September, which right now we are in the month of September. And so we're going back, uh, what, 62 years. And I turned on the TV that particular night. And I saw Tiny and Stan on TV. Mm. And for whatever reason, in my eight-year-old mind, um, I liked the heels. I liked yeah. what they were doing on TV. And they became my favorite tag team at that moment. Oh, wow! And, uh, you know, then, of course, I was fortunate to get to know Stan personally over the years. And that was always a blessing because he was just a great friend. So yeah, That's how it started officially uh, 62 years ago when I started following it regularly. All right, here we go. Here's the Graham brothers. Eddie and Jerry. Um, That wrestling review cover, and that is from my collection. That was the one that I had mentioned in previous episodes that uh, I was had the honor of walking with my grandma to the drugstore. And on the newsstand was this first issue, which I didn't realize any relevance of it at that point. Yeah. You know, it didn't mean anything that it was a premier issue or anything like that. But um, she gave me the 50 cents, which I remember her telling me 50 cents. That's a lot of money. But uh, bless her heart. She gave it to me and I have that magazine. The Graham brothers, they were, they were probably at that time, And to be on the cover of the premier issue of Wrestling Review, uh, they were probably the premier tag team of the time. They were big in New York, which at the time was Capital Sports. It wasn't, this was pre WWF all that stuff. Okay. And uh, they they were huge as a a blonde, heel, brother tag team. Uh, Surprise, surprise, they were not real brothers either. (laughs) Uh, Jerry Graham was the only real Graham out of the bunch. Uh, Eddie was Eddie Gossett. And, okay. uh, but together they they became uh, very well-known and just the idea of a brother tag team. And and I would point out that brother tag teams were probably dominant for the 50s because we had the Brunetti brothers, we had the Scott brothers, we had the Rougeos. The original is not the kids that later on went in the WWF. Right. Uh, the originals. We had uh, the Bravo brothers. We had the Kelmikov brothers. We had the Lasowskis, the Nielsen's, the Volkoffs, the Von Brauners. And, I mean, we could go on and on. Yeah. Brothers. And 90% of them were not real brothers.
3: <laughs> well, you so know, so the, it's sold.
0: So the Graham brothers were huge. And probably, you know, again on magazine covers that were published out of New York. Logically, it made sense that, you know, most of the guys that would appear on their covers or inside the magazines would be East Coast wrestlers because they were published out there.
1: Yeah. The
0: Grahams had a tremendous feud. And to me, it was one of the uh, most interesting stories for tag teams. Okay. They had a feud with, and I didn't mention this team yet, but they had a feud with the Bastine brothers. And I think I gave you a picture of the Bastines yes. if you want to bring them up. There they are. Now this, now this is a, it's not the greatest picture in the world, but the reason I shared it with you is because each of them have their arms on a chest. Yes. And that little chest was what each of the Bastines, that's Red Bastine on the right. Okay, and that's Lou Bastine, his brother, on the left. Lou Bastien was really Lou Klein, great Detroit-born wrestler and a, okay. and a really good worker in his own right. Together they became the Bastines. Well, they had this hot feud with Eddie and Jerry Graham. Okay. And this feud went on for over a year, literally selling out arenas on the East Coast. When the feud was kind of dying down, they had to come up with something different. Now, let me back up just a spec and tell you that the Bastines had a gimmick. Okay. Their gimmick was that they wanted to be champions and that each match that they won, they would bring this small chest to the ring, set it on the apron, and after the match that they would win, they would each drop a silver dollar into this chest.
1: Okay. With the
0: idea (laughs) being that the chest was full of silver dollars because over the time they'd been wrestling together and their success, they'd won all their matches, that this chest was filled with silver dollars and this was their gimmick. So just as their battles with the Grahams are kind of coming to a close, they got to come up with something different to prolong the program. The Graham brothers got a hold of that chest during the course of one of their matches on the ring apron. And believe it or not, those dastardly Graham's decided they were going to dump that chest of silver dollars not only all over the ring, but the ring floor. And so there were silver dollars all over. And they were real. This was a real thing. (laughs) And now, you know, the Bastines, they're not only embarrassed, they have to get revenge for the fact that all their silver dollars are gone. (laughs) <laughs> I would say that if there were any fans that walked away with the silver dollar or two or three that night from picking them up, and if they still have it, that's kind of a nice memento. Yeah. They were real silver dollars. Wow. And then the feud went on again for a <laughs> long time between the Bastines and the Grahams. Yeah. So when I talk about the program and the longevity of something and how they can keep the storyline going, this was one of, in my opinion, one of the most fun to look back on. Yeah. And if you get any of those early issues of wrestling review, they do talk about in the early Graham uh, issue, the premiere issue. And they also talk about it a couple issues later when the Bastines were on the cover of okay. wrestling review and All about right. there it was, it was two or three issues later of which I also have, I have that <laughs> magazine. No so, way. I don't so, believe I don't it. <laughs> and I wouldn't, and I wouldn't give it up. <laughs> so that was how they prolonged. That. All right. Let's there we go. The assassins. Oh boy. Now, now you're now you're getting into something that you know. We talked on a previous program about the lost art of the masked wrestler yes. and how good, how important it was to have that hidden identity and come from parts unknown and the promoters don't know who he is and the fellow wrestlers don't know who he is and why is he wearing a mask? Is it because he's ugly or is it because he's you know? As he says, I had to put the mask on because if everybody knew who I was, they wouldn't sign to wrestle me, you know, so in order to get the big matches, I got to put this mask on. Well, here we have the assassins. Now, this is the version of the assassins that is most famous throughout the, the, the late 50s into the 60s. And this is Jody Hamilton, who was the Joe Hamilton, Jody Hamilton. He went by both names. Um, he was the real-life brother of Larry Rocky Hamilton, the Missouri mauler. So okay. anybody that you know, didn't know that, there you go. But Joe Hamilton teamed up with a guy named Tom Renesto, and they put masks on. Originally, they were called the Bolos, the Great Bolo. It was Bolo and the Great Bolo. And they were masked, pretty much looked the same as they do here. But yeah. then in other territories, they became the Assassins. And the whole idea was the same concept. They wouldn't unmask unless they were beaten, two pinfalls, two submission falls. Of course, that was never gonna happen. Right. <laughs> uh the, the idea was is for the good guys to try to get the masks off. And the, you know, so the, the gimmick was the same. But who they were, and in the kayfabe era where that stuff just wasn't leaked out, yeah, like it, you know, could be today.
1: Right.
0: And they they just went they were all over the country. I mean, they wrestled in the Mid-South. They wrestled in the South. They wrestled in the Carolinas, Florida, Texas, uh, Renesto and Hamilton were the real deal. Yeah. But well, there were other, there were other heel teams because yeah. again, promoters found that they could, you know, they could have, uh, assassins. They could have, I think I gave you the mighty Yankees. I want you to throw that out. There, there they are. There they are. At, entering the ring, getting introduced, uh, They were the mighty Yankees. And, again, there were different versions in different territories of guys under the mask. This particular one, mighty Yankee number one on the left, mighty Yankee on the right, number two. That's all they were, number one and number two.
1: Uh,
0: Number one was Moose Evans. Number two was Bob Stanley. He also wrestled as Bob Merrill. And uh some other names too, but he was Bob Stanley. but they also wrestled without their masks in yeah. some of the territories. Right and here. if you throw that next picture up, there yep. they are. yeah moose Evans on the on the left, Bob Stanley on the right. And they, in this picture, they wrestled as brothers, moose and Giant. moose <laughs> Evans, Giant Evans. You gotta love it, yeah, but even you know, if you look at them, they kind of look alike. Yeah, they then they put a mask on and work in another territory as the Yankees. So they were able to, uh, you know, really tell the story for tag team wrestling. Wow. Those are some big guys, even looking at them.
3: Those well,
0: Moose news. Evans, I never saw Gene, uh, or I never saw uh, Bob Merrill personally in, in live action. But Moose Evans on the left, he was always billed at about six foot eight. And he was probably a legit 6'4 or 5'. He was wow. a big dude. Yeah. And usually around the 300-pound mark. When he wrestled as Moose Evans, um, he would wrestle with uh, cut-off uh, jeans, more mm-hmm. of a lumberjack-type wrestler. Okay, yeah. But, of course, when he was Moose here, and then you saw him in that earlier picture when he was one of the Yankees with yeah. the mask, uh, you, in those days you'd never recognize him. I mean – Yeah. And again, it was different territories, and so people didn't have the ability to know that, you know, Moose Evans and Giant Evans weren't real brothers, if they heard about them at all, because uh, without, you know, the internet and the sources we have today, people didn't didn't right. know about what happened in the next city. Yeah, yeah. All right, here we go. Some heel team here. Well, this goes back to that World War II and the hatred of a, of a, of a, a foreigner. Uh, boy, I tell you, on the, on the left there, you got Baron von Raschke in his real heel days. Mm-hmm. And we all know that he was, you know, plain old, simple, shy, kind, good-natured Jim Raschke from Nebraska, as he <laughs> says. <laughs> yeah. But uh, when he adopted that heel persona as a German, and, you know, come up with that accent, fake accent, and, and the belligerence that he offered in his interviews. He hooked up with one of the legendary German wrestlers, Hans Schmidt. Now, the interesting thing there is that Hans Schmidt himself was not a real German. He was actually a French-Canadian. Ah. And he took on the, uh, the Hans Schmidt persona as I shaved his head and became a bald German. Because, again, it got over in the 50s and the 60s when America, you know, when you went to wrestling matches, at least, America hated Germany. They hated the Germans, the evil Germans, because they were going to trounce our American wrestlers and they were going to take our titles and go back to the to the mother country. And, you know, all the, the rhetoric that they would use on their their interviews. Yeah. And so they got over. I mean, huge. Here now, of course, we didn't have any brother connection or anything. Right. But we know that we know that Baron also uh, formed a team with Mad Dog Bashan. Yep. We know that Hans Schmidt held great honor in a lot of tag teams. The hated German with another fellow hated German, Hans Hermann, who was yes. a huge, and I mean that in both size and box office, in the 50s, Hans Hermann was a, a, a good draw. And him and Schmidt together. And then Herman was with uh, Killer Kowalski, Uh, Wladek, Walter Kowalski, the original Killer Kowalski, Uh, Herman and Kowalski. Very, very good team. So you throw various offshoots in there with these combinations, and uh, they were always the bad guys and could draw the fans. Here we go, the Anderson brothers. First, Boy, I I tell you what, now this, this probably talks about legacy better than anything that we could. Yeah. We've got two guys who, first of all, let's say it up front, they were the Minnesota Wrecking Crew, Lars on the left, Gene on the right, the Anderson brothers. Well, Gene was the only real Anderson. (laughs) And Gene was a a South St. Paul, Minnesota graduate of uh, South St. Paul High School he was a wrestler that was, got a lot of his early training from Vern Gagne okay. in the late 50s, very early 1960, 61-ish. Gene yeah. was being trained by Vern. And for the next four years, from 61 to 65, Vern would usually pick a wrestler, usually one each year at that early point where mm-hmm. he'd train a wrestler. And Gene would assist with Vern behind the scenes and train the wrestler. So, Gene knew the fundamentals. He knew how to work. He was likely, in his own way, a shooter. Yeah. Um, I don't think you really wanted to mess with him. But in the AWA, he never really got over uh, as uh, anything more than a preliminary wrestler. Okay. A lot of times you would see him in the early 60s on TV, maybe doing a job for someone or teamed with someone. And then his, his uh, partner on TV would take the take the pinfall. But Gene had that reputation from being a tough guy. Yeah. Well, in 1965, one of Vern's uh, graduates, the guy he worked with was Larry Hainimi, uh, a St. Cloud College graduate, came to Vern for some training, and that's Lars Anderson. So after Gene worked with Lars, or Larry in this case, Hainimi, um, during the first year of Larry's debut in the AWA they had a chance to work together in matches against each other if you look at a lot of old AWA results you'll see Gene Anderson against Larry Hainimi usually Hainimi was going over Gene because Vern was you know grooming Larry for for future uh matches yeah well Gene got the idea that him and Larry were good friends they enjoyed working together So Gene got an offer to go down south, and he took Larry with him. And there was where the Anderson brothers were born. They first ventured into Tennessee very briefly as Lars and Gene, and then they went into the Carolinas and Atlanta. And Lars and Gene Anderson in 1967-68 were the dominant heel team in that territory, the Carolinas, Atlanta, so forth. So, anytime you saw a magazine article, uh, some of the national magazines, the Andersons were featured, Lars and Gene. Now, yeah. AWA fans, they may have remembered remember Gene Anderson, but very few connected. I mean, obviously some knew, yeah. but very few connected that Lars was Larry Heine. Yeah. Hine yeah. just disappeared. So, this legacy went on for a couple of years. And in 1969, Lars, Larry Hainimi got the bug to come home, meaning Minneapolis territory. Yeah. And so he did. Uh, What had happened while he was gone for that couple of years with Gene, Vern had traded or trained another wrestler. And remember, I told you he was kind of doing them one at a time at that yeah,
1: time. Yeah.
0: You have the big training camps he had later where he'd have a dozen guys try out, and then six of them would come out of the camp yeah. as stars. Yeah. So he trained a guy by the name of Alan Rogowski. And Al Rogowski made his wrestling debut as Rock Rogowski. In the initial Rock Rogowski matches after his training, he was touted as being uh, possibly related to the Crusher and the Bruiser because of his appearance at the time. He had a blonde crew cut,
2: okay. kind of built
0: along the lines of Bruiser and Crusher. Yeah. Then over the next year, he ended up where he was reported to be a nephew of Dick the Bruiser. <laughs> well, when Lars came back home, uh, right before he left the Carolinas in Atlanta. Alan Rogowski went down south okay. and joined Lars and uh, Gene as Oli Anderson. There, and he there is. you go. And that was kind of an earlier picture of Oli Anderson. So Gene was now with his other brother, and Lars is back home teaming with Larry Hennett. And they had a three-year run together. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yep, they did. And then the new Minnesota wrecking crew then was Gene and Ole. Now, they are probably the most famous of the Anderson brothers, the the most remembered, because they were together for, uh, well, from about 1970, pretty much through the 70s, -hmm. uh, Gene and Ole were together. So they had a long run together. There were a couple of times when Lars would come back and join his brothers, just, you know, one-off type things. There was also a time when uh, uh, Oli and Lars teamed very briefly together, mm-hmm.
1: and yeah. then there was a time later
0: on in the early 80s, I believe, uh, maybe it was the late 70s, but Lars and Oli actually feuded at a oh, brother wow. war, at a brother war where Lars was the good guy, and uh, you know brotherly love, but you know we're gonna take the other guy out. That always went over well at the box office. So, you know, how could two brothers hate each other? I mean, you know, it's, it's good for the storyline, yeah. but the Anderson brothers in the form of Lars, Ole and Gene uh, really had a long, good 10 year, 12 year run. Yeah. I will point out that both Lars and Gene were born in the same year. So they were the same age. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> any genealogy, unless you were twins, that would be hard to do. Yeah, But uh, we never knew about that back then. <laughs> so then, you know, after after Gene was retiring, because, you know, he, he'd he been getting up there in the 50s, in yeah. age 50 range and stuff. Well, he started to take on a man- managerial role for a while with some teams and only started uh, branching off a little bit with other partners. Mm-hmm. Well, then he comes up with a new partner. They're going to continue the Anderson legacy. And he comes up with his brother, at one time it was his brother, so yes. that would have been a younger brother of the three of them. There is another time when he was Oli was the uncle of Arne Anderson. There he is, double A. And there you go. You've got Arne Anderson and Oli Anderson. Now the thing the interesting thing about Arne is that he was also from Minnesota. His real name was Marty Lundy. Yes. Well, it is Marty Lundy. He's still with us, thankfully. <laughs> yeah and uh, he he was a Minnesota wrestler, but he never wrestled in Minnesota. He got his training wherever he had gotten it from, and he went on the road. and he had some great success, early success in various combinations and matches. But when he became Arn, and he actually wrestled early on as Marty Lundy. But when he became Arne Anderson, like I said, originally they were called brothers. um then it, the story changed. It was Holy Uncle and Arn the nephew. Yeah. Um, I think they were cousins. I think I've got some programs <laughs> where they were cousins at one point. You know, yeah. it depends on how the promoter wanted to spin it. Yeah. And again, being, being fabe, we never heard about it. Right. So that's kind of how the Anderson legacy went on. I will point out, and as long as we're talking family legacy here, mm-hmm. there was a time when Ric Flair was also reported to be a cousin
1: yeah.
0: to the yeah. Anderson brothers. And I'm gonna give you a really weird one now. And as I was talking here, this came to mind. It's weird when you look at, if you wanted to do the family tree, because if Gene and Lars were brothers and Oli became a brother, well, Oli was also reported to be a nephew to uh, Dick the Bruiser. Uh, Dick the Bruiser was reported early or all through his career as being a cousin to the crusher. The Crusher was reported to be a brother to Art Nielsen. Or Art, I'm sorry, Stan Nielsen. He wrestled with Art Nielsen. But Stan Nielsen, who was a brother to Art. Well, if you look at this family tree, wow. And the <laughs> truth of the matter is none of it's real. <laughs> so you gotta love it.
3: Yeah, yeah. Wow. All right. Well, let's talk about these guys.
0: Well, I I put this one up there because one of the things that I had mentioned early on is that what really made a good tag team in the day is longevity and the ability to get over maybe in one territory for a long period of time. And even better, if you could get over in multiple territories. Yeah. Um, My late friend, Jim Melby and I, we used to talk about tag teams and having uh, the longevity together. Well, Red Bastine told me, he said that uh, he referred to it as an established tag team. That was Red Bastine's comment. An established team, as Red referred to it, was a team that could wrestle in multiple territories therefore being established. They weren't just a one-town or a one-city, one-promotion team. And Red could use that example in the sense of him being with Lou Bastien or Lou Klein, which I'm going to touch on. The Bastien brothers, I got to backtrack here. The Bastien brothers, Red and Lou, they were Red and Lou Bastien every territory they wrestled in, except when they went into Detroit, they were... You ready for this? Ready. They were the Klein brothers, Lou and Red Klein, only in Detroit. (laughs) And the reason for that was, and I've got programs to to verify this. The only reason they were the Klein brothers was because, as I mentioned to you, Lou Klein was a Detroit-born wrestler. He was a hometown hero. Ah. So naturally, he's going to stay Lou Klein. And he brought in his brother, Red. Isn't that amazing? And that, that's, that's an obscure fact. So they were the they were the climbers. But anyway, Red Bastine said an established team had to work multiple territories, which the Bastines did. And then Red also wrestled with uh, Billy Red Lions. Okay. They were in the AWA together, and they also wrestled in Texas together. So Red said that made us an established team. That was his version. of it. But in the case of these two guys, Rip Hawk on the left in the front, yeah. and Swede Hansen in the back. Swede was a little bigger. Rip Hawk was a great journeyman wrestler over the years. Uh, main event of the lot as a single. Yeah. Very reliable hand in the ring. Very respected. He had some tag teams with other guys, uh, Rock Hunter being one of them. But when he hooked up with Swede Hansen, Swede was a guy who on his own yeah, he never really cut it. He was kind of middle of the card, but together they were dynamite. It, yeah. it was like, this was the, this was magic and they could draw the fans yeah. and they, they went into Texas. They went into the Carolinas. They were uh, in Atlanta together and just always, uh, if not the main event, the semifinal and always just a top notch team and always given a push. You see, they have a title belt on there. Yeah, I'm not that. sure which title belt that is. I can't read it. I've got different pictures of them with different belts. Yeah. And I'm, not, I'm going to admit something here, gang. I'm not really a belt guy where I can get in and say, okay, which titles they had. Yeah. But uh, this one here, they were champions of one of the organizations they were with. Wow. They had the longevity. They, they wrestled pretty much together for a lot of the sixties,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, most of the sixties. And uh, I used to get programs from uh, Gene Gordon in um, the Carolinas. He'd send me the programs. And I always got excited when I saw Hawk and Hanson on there. I saw Rip Hawk in St. Louis wrestle a singles match. And in my own way, I was always impressed with him. So this was one of those teams that they were a great team. Yeah.
3: Yeah. All right. And
0: our last pick. Well, this is a weird one. Um, I think it's fairly common today in today's wrestling where I think we can agree that tag team wrestling is not utilized as it used to be. Not to say there isn't tag team wrestling, but certainly the storylines and the the angles and the breakups and the strange partnerships and different things I don't think they have today. This was a weird one. Um, and it is the only time that we had eight brawlers. All four of them were heels. And this was from uh, the St. Paul Auditorium in April of 71. We had Larry Hennig, Nick Bachwinkle, Lars Anderson, and Blackjack Lanza on one side. Okay. Against Mad Dog and Butcher Vachon and Stan Crusher Kowalski. Who was the manager of Shozo Strong Kobayashi, and they were going to battle each other basically for local supremacy. Like which four heels were the best? Oh, wow. And it was interesting. It was interesting how they wrote this thing up and played it out on TV because the it was written out that the Vashans and Kobayashi had the advantage because. Stan was the manager of Kobayashi and could offer guidance in the match and also had uh, his own tag team success with tiny mills through the years. Right. So they, they made that known, but on the other side, the storyline went that Lars and Larry being a dominant team at the point of, at that point in time, teamed up with the young snobbish, arrogant Nick Bockwinkel, <laughs> And then they were joined by Jack Lanza, who at the time, was managed by Bobby Heenan. So uh, you didn't really have anybody other than Hennig and Lars that were the team there, yeah. but Lanza and Bachwinkle coming in, but Lanza was managed by Heenan. So it was ended up where it was declared it was going to almost be five against four because Heenan was the mystery part. Of yeah, it.
3: Heenan, Bobby.
0: Now remember, I talked earlier when I saw the Russians against the Japanese. Yes. Where in that scenario, the fans would not choose because they were both foreigners and they hated both of them and they just wanted them both to be gone from America. Yeah. Well, in this particular situation, other than Kobayashi, and by 1971, that Japanese, um, the Japanese hatred or. or Promotion towards being hated wasn't as predominant, shall we say. Yeah. So even though he was from Japan and he was a heel, he wasn't uh, presented in the same scenario as his predecessors like Mitsu and Kinji and Dr. Moto and Mr. Moto and so on. Yeah. So we had uh, the fans in this one, though you have four heels on each team, the fans did take a side okay. and it was an interesting question at the beginning. Like who would the fans cheer? Yeah. Who do you think they cheered in
3: this one? I was going to say probably Henning and, and and, Bachwinkle and, 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 and Lars and Blackjack, because they're all American versus, well, at the time, I believe the Vashans were supposedly from Algeria. And Kobayashi, uh, Japan, and, uh, you know, the Big K, he's from the only American. Okay. Well,
0: you'd be wrong. I was going to say I'm probably wrong. (laughs) You'd be wrong. I I was surprised. I I went into this match because I I was interested in trying to figure out which ones the fans would side with, if they did at all. Yeah, because I in my little mind I'd remembered, uh, even though it was what, 14, 15 years earlier, I'd remembered that the Russians and the Japanese, the fans, booed them both and cheered them both when they yeah. tried to destroy each other. Yeah. But in this one it was interesting because, and I want to believe that Bobby Heenan was the factor. They would not cheer him, and they went and cheered the Vashans. And uh, Kobayashi and K. Wow. and so there you had it. Well, the uh, the match went to Hennig Lars Lanza and Nick, and uh, it was a it was a wild one. It was a fun one. The, yeah. the thing that's fun about this card and tag team wrestling in general is that normally I'm not a fan of putting. I guess I wasn't even really a fan of six man matches on a regular basis, but yeah. I liked them. But I always thought adding that fourth man to each team, you know, like, we're really stretching it here. But this was the one and only time that the Twin Cities ever got an eight-man tag. This is a one-off. So that's what made this really special. Yeah. And the fact that the fans were able to determine in their minds that they'd rather rather see the Vashans and Kobayashi
1: Mm. and
0: Stan win versus the others yeah and that pretty much was one of the greatest tag teams i've ever seen yeah the other thing i want to point out um the great thing about the psychology and tag teams and this is why it truly is brian it's a lost art today and i wish we could bring it back yeah it was always fun to see two guys that had teamed together for a number of years and all of a sudden they'd have a falling out Yeah. and, And that came true with Tiny Mills and Stan Kowalski. They had been together for about a four year run. Proclaiming how great they were, proving how great they were with their titles. And then they had a falling out. Tiny, his version was, I'm tired of carrying Stan because I'm the veteran and I've been carrying this guy for years. Stan, on the other hand, saying Tiny is old and behind the times, and I'm care, I'm tired of carrying him in the match. They have this battle, they wrestled each other, made for some interesting matches. But it's always interesting because as a fan, you look back and you go, Oh my gosh, you know, they, they don't like each other. And yes, we some of us knew that wrestling wasn't real even back then, but you got to get into that suspension of disbelief. You gotta believe in Santa Claus just for a little while, yeah. and it's fun. And so that was one of the angles where teams would break up. Yeah. Then you had scenarios like uh, Mad Dog Vashon and Vern Gagne, who the Vern Gagne is having his headaches and troubles with Stevens and Patterson, two heels. They injure his partner, Billy Robinson, and Vern can't deal with their heel tactics. And so he declares, I've decided if I want to beat these two clowns, these two roughnecks, these two bad guys, I got to have somebody who fights like them. He surprises everybody and comes up with Mad Dog Vashon. I've asked the dog to be my partner. And the dog says, no, 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 I'm not going to be your partner. They hate each other because they have feuded. Vernon Dog have feuded for 15 years, match after match, storyline after storyline over the title, you name it. Well, lo and behold, Vern convinces him to be his partner because Mad Dog didn't like Stevens and Patterson either. So you get that storyline where they can combine together to battle a mutual foe. And then, as Vern said, when we're done, you go your way, I'll go mine. Well, they won the title. They beat (laughs) Stevens and Patterson. So now we can stay together for a year. (laughs) Yeah. Then they go, you know, they lose the title. They move on. Yeah. Well, it even gets better because when Vern had retired in 1981, I've just had a comment from a guy the other day. He says, well, Vern retired, but he didn't stay retired. So, you know, that's bogus. Well, but again, it's about storyline and it's about drawing fans and it's about, you know, building on this. Vern retired. Mad Dog is having trouble with Sheik Adnan el Casey and Jerry Blackwell. And they're double teaming him and they're this and they're that. So Mad Dog, he contacts Vern Gagne, who's in retirement. And the storyline is, you owe me a favor, Vern. That's what he was telling him. "I, I came to you when you needed me. Now you owe me a favor. Vern says, no, no, I am retired, dog. I'm not wrestling. They played this out for over a month where Vern was and Vern come out and he said, I've been getting telegrams. I've been getting phone calls. I've been getting letters. This guy wants me to be his partner. I am retired. Well, finally, Vern comes out and said, you know, I've thought about it and I agree with Mad Dog. I owe him a favor. And I was in the auditorium when he came in center ring and made this announcement, Brian. Okay. 7,000 fans strong in the Minneapolis auditorium when Vern said, I agree with Mad Dog. I owe him a favor. I will come out of retirement for this match. You could have heard a pin, you could not have heard a pin drop in that auditorium because it was so loud. The fans cheered. Now that's drawing power. Now Vern was coming out and Vern made the comment. He said, I'm going to come out of retirement. I'm going to help the dog. And when we're done and they did it on TV, they said, when I'm done, you go your way and I'll go mine." <laughs> get drew. So yeah. why wouldn't you bring the guy out of retirement for one match? Yeah. And that was what I, what I was getting at too, is that when you tell the correct storyline with a tag team, tag teams sometimes drew better than singles matches. Yeah. And we haven't even touched the iceberg here the tip of the iceberg on, on how great the storylines were, but it was always about partnerships. And of course with the dog and Vern, the fans always asked in the initial team up, can Vern trust the dog? Yeah. He's asked him to be his partner against Stevens and Patters. Can he trust him? Cause dog was a heel.
1: Yeah.
0: So you, you put that element into it. What a great story. Yeah. And it drew fans. Yeah. There you have it.
3: Amazing. Uh, yeah, I I remember that I was a little kid. Uh, the second time around when when uh, Fern came out of retirement, I do remember that. One thing, you know, we have these. You talk about six-man tags. You're not a fan of them yeah. and stuff, but there there was a, a a team, the Freebirds. I remember that did really well with it. Uh, probably one of the very few. Uh, that had that. The the ability to draw on the six man tags. Now they usually won tag team titles. They'd have to switch people out, which is called the freebird rule. But, but what do you <laughs> think of the freebirds as a as a as a team?
0: I thought as a three man team they were phenomenal. They they were great. Um, the the better wrestlers of the team were Gordy and Roberts. Yeah. I mean I I don't think anybody could deny that. But uh, of the three. Hayes had the charisma, the personality, the mouth, more of the draw in that department. So you put the three of them together. You know, I'd point out with three-man teams, it, this is interesting. There were times when they uh, certain territories would have a three-man team that would work together and two of the members would win a tag team title. And then the team would come out and say, well, the three of us are a team so we can interchange the partners. And, you know, these two can wrestle this night and these two the next night. And, again, it was all about, well, no, you can't because these two won the title. You know, they'd play this up as controversy. So it was good. Um, The Freebirds, they're another established, to use Red Bastine's term, tag team. They wrestled in the Mid-South together. They wrestled, obviously, in Texas where they were over huge with the Von Ericks. That was a great feud. And they wrestled in Atlanta together. So – they were an established team yeah. and they had um, I think I've touched on this with you before. One of the most genius tag team moves that I've ever enjoyed was I've always felt, and I'm, I'm honest about this. Mm-hmm. I've always felt that the road warriors should not have been given the AWA tag team title. And the only reason I say that is because, A lot of fans today say, well, this wrestler, or this team should have been given a run with the title or that one should have had the title. And that's the mindset, because I think we can agree that titles today change so fast. There's no longevity between winning Mm -hmm. with the road warriors. They should not have been given the title because they could draw money. They did not need the title to be the draw. And that that's the truth, so you, yeah. you say, well, Billy Robinson as a singles wrestler, he didn't need the title to be Billy Robinson, yeah. he did well as a challenger, yeah. And in the case of the Road Warriors, I think we all remember them. They came to the ring to their to their entrance music. What was it? Uh, what was uh, their Iron entrance? Man Iron Man, Yeah. And they came to the ring and usually they never waited to be introduced. They came in and started tossing bodies out of the ring and dominance. And they, you know, we talk about their no selling and that they were so dominant and the fans got behind them and they cheered them as well. They should for that reason, they shouldn't have been given the title because the question that I had immediately is how do you ever explain logically and rationally, that they could lose the title. Who's going to beat them? Yeah. And that's my rationale. Yeah. To yeah. have them as challengers and getting disqualified or having their opponents to the champions, getting disqualified, keeping the title, screwing them out of the title, having no contests where the dominance was the road warriors. The fans already knew they were the better team right. in their perception right. that they were the better team. So don't give them the title. So when Vern put the title on him, um, we know the AWA was going through some fractured moments yeah. in mm-hmm. that year and the years going forward. Um, the most genius thing he ever did, and this is going to take us back to the Freebirds. Okay. The most genius thing he ever did was when the Warriors had given their notice, they were going to leave. Vern had them drop the title to the most, unassuming team, yes. the team that no one in their right mind would have went to Vegas and put money on that could, they could beat the warriors. And that was Jimmy Garvin and Steve Regal. Yeah. I mean, they were an, a, they were a good team, yeah. but they weren't champions, but here's the genius of it in their right mind on any given night, they could have never won the title. Fans believe that, but yeah. in order to make it real, and the only thing they could have done to defeat the road warriors was that particular night in st paul the freebirds had been in a battle the night before in chicago yes against Superclash. the warriors super clash in super clash correct and so they they made mention of that that the freebirds came to ringside to to get revenge or to go after the warriors Well, during the course of the match, it ended up that it was the Freebirds, all three of them, and Regal and Garvin. And we know now the result was is that because of that outside interference, the referee not seeing it, (laughs) the Road Warriors lost the title. But that was the only – and to me, that will forever be a very genius, creative – realistic move to do something or let's put it this way in my mind to correct something yeah. that Vern shouldn't have done in the first place, because there's no way that fans would ever believe anyone could ever beat the Road Warriors. Right. Yeah. No. I mean, once they were champions, you couldn't beat them and make it believable. Yeah. I, that's an interesting, I know, I never thought of it like that.
3: Um, I loved them as a kid, you know, they, I mean, the face paint, the, the coming in, kicking everybody, you know. But yeah. I was a little kid, you know. And so, you
0: know, hey, I, I liked them too for what it was worth. Yeah. I will be honest and tell you that I was not a fan of the way they changed tag team wrestling because yeah. they were the first team to do what they did. Yeah. They yeah. came in. I mean, we never, unless it was a heated, uh, program between two two teams where they would just come to the ring and start battling one another right. you know over a long program between the yeah. two of them yeah. but the road warriors were different in the sense that it didn't matter whether they were on tv wrestling a squash team mm. or whether they were in the main event wrestling you know another main event team yeah. they just came in and they just kicked butt yeah. i mean they just kicked butt yeah. and that was different for me as a fan i yeah. immediately saw okay this is great but once they made them champions, I just yeah, I said, why? Yeah. I, this doesn't make sense. Yeah. You know, looking back on now, I'll I'll tell
3: you, I think honestly that a good feud that that when the long riders wrestled the Road Warriors, that was a great feud they were having. If, yeah. They should have yes. they should have thought about okay, we'll put the belts on the long riders. Uh and then feud on for, you know, five, six months, whatever it was, yeah. because those guys, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I've watched some matches with the long riders. And when you first time you see them, you're like, okay, these guys are gonna get their butts kicked by the road warriors. Cause you know, they don't look like they're in shape at all, but they're good wrestlers. But I mean, you know, but they actually, they put on a
0: good oh, yeah. match. They, they were a very good roughhouse team team. Yes. By the way, Red team, they were an established tag Team because yes. they had wrestled together under masks as the super destroyers in texas yes where the von erickson Tree birds were yeah. uh, the long riders yeah mean, they would have been they would have been a good team um but you know here's the thing we we get again as i said you know there were there were starting to be some cracks in the foundation yeah. even as early as 1985-86 because yeah. of what was happening in the wrestling business as a whole
1: mm-hmm.
0: and yeah. You know, Vern, I I think at the time, and this isn't trying to make excuses for him. Right. He was like every other promoter at the time. Uh, the Road Warriors had given their notice. The Freebirds were also leaving, and believe it or not, they were leaving as well at this time. Yeah. The ro- the Long Riders were not around as long after that. Um, th- there was just no stability. Yeah. To to try to do any long term. Uh, can I do this and make it make sense? And uh, as we went down the line, uh, you know, Mr. Mr. Electricity and Steve, uh, Steve Regal and, and Jimmy Garvin, they were a great team because, and this is why they were a great tag team champions, because nobody believed they should be. <laughs> you know, every everybody, you believe that no matter who their opponents were, whether it be the high flyers or the the midnight rockers or whoever it might have been, yeah. R- Regal and Garvin, they they're they're not champions. That's what made them a good team. Yeah. Whereas the Road Warriors, they didn't need it. Right. You need to have them get screwed. And now I'm going off track here. That's all right. Go for it. I'm gonna, but I'm gonna go to my grave with this one. Okay. All of those people out there. Who say if Vern Gagne would have put the title on Hulk Hogan, <laughs> the AWA would have survived? Well, I think we can be realistic and say, no, that in hindsight, that wasn't going to be the case. Yeah. But here's the deal: Nick Bockwinkel was drawing so well with Heenan as the heel champion. Yeah. You had the gold mine right there.
1: Yeah.
0: Hogan. He, may, he was the road he was the road warriors of a single wrestler yeah he he was he was in in the perception of every fan's mind nobody could beat Hulk hogan he was bigger than life and by the fact that he got screwed out of the title with heenan's interference with disqualifications with hulk getting disqualified uh whatever no contest that is what made it believable And for that reason, Vern was not going to put the title on him because he – and as the business was changing, we all know that it wouldn't have been a good move. So you got to look at the promotional side of it. I think uh, the couple examples I just gave you about why somebody shouldn't be a champion,
1: Yeah.
0: and it's my opinion, folks. It's fun. We can sit over a cup of coffee and talk about it. And, you know, neither of us are right or wrong. That's what's fun about talking about wrestling.
3: There you go. That's right. So,
0: all right. Well, folks, I want to thank Mr. George
3: Shire for coming on today and talking to us. George, always a pleasure. I always learn something. And, you know, I. What would you learn today? Well, I learned that uh, some of these guys weren't brothers, but they look awful like the Bastille brothers. I thought they were because they both had red hair. You know who's gonna, you know, I, I believed it. You know, the Grams, I thought they were, I thought they were brothers. Um, your analogy well, on they, the road, your analogy on the Road Warriors was was made sense to me. I never thought of it like that. Uh, with well, something. I'm not
0: saying that's right. No, no, no. I'm saying though, I'm I just, understand. I'm just saying that,
3: that was a perception that as, I had as a kid. You know, oh yeah, they were great because they beat up these two old guys, Baron Von Raschi and Crusher, to get the yeah. titles. But now, as I'm older, I understand your analogy of why maybe that shouldn't have happened, but it did. Uh, Things like that. So, you know, I appreciate it. Again, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. George Shire, thank you, sir, for coming on. Appreciate it. Always
0: love your insight. Always enjoy it, Brian. Thank you. Good job, as
3: always. Well, thank you very much. And, folks, if you're watching, thank you. If you're listening, thank you. And please subscribe. Please subscribe, and we will talk to you soon.
1: Hey, this is a Total Package, Lex Luger, you're listening to the VOC Nation, don't miss out.
2: Hey guys, before we get started, I just wanted to read this commercial because it's an agreement that we made with a really great podcast, and I want to tell you guys all about it. Pro Wrestling Interviews, it features guests who are hot indie stars as well as the greats of the ring. Each week, you can join the amazing Velvet, as well as Dr. John, as they host this jam-packed hour of interviews, pro wrestling news, and entertaining guests. It's an hour you don't want to miss. Trust me, you don't want to miss it. Every Sunday, 9 p.m. Eastern, just go to prowrestlinginterviews.com, and it'll take you to their Facebook page where you can get the custom podcast link for that week. Don't miss a second of Pro Wrestling Interviews. that Sunday nights, 9 Eastern, prowrestlinginterviews.com.
1: The worldwide
2: leader in entertainment. This is... The VOC Nation Radio Network. Check out In The Room. Every Tuesday night at 9, listen in. Pro Wrestling Illustrated's Brady Hicks, former WCW star, Stroh Maestro, Cassie Fist, Matt Grimm.
3: And you know Ray are there too, right, Wade? We sure are, and we've got great guests,
2: like Lex Luger, AJ Styles, Kaku, and more. It's a heck of a party. Plus, I didn't get thrown off uh, buildings.
0: And then,
2: didn't uh, the get pregnant either. Sometimes I think it gets so ridiculous. We were getting into like snuff film territory there. In the room, 9 p.m. Eastern on VOC Nation. Yo, this is Jerry Steins of the Nasty Boys. Yeah, Brian Knobs. Yeah, sure you're getting ready you to get nasty. Well, listen to the VOC Nation, baby.
3: VOC Nation is one of the longest running wrestling podcast networks. Having started way back in 2010, VOC Nation provides daily streaming shows where fans have the ability to interact with their hosts and guests via phone calls, emails, and Twitter. VOC Nation hosts include former backstage interviewer from both AWA and WWE, Ken Resnick, former WCW performer, The Maestro, former Impact performer, Wes Crisco, Pro Wrestling Illustrated contributor, Brady Hicks, and former Philadelphia radio personality, Bruce Works. Archive free content includes past interviews with huge names like Hulk Hogan, Jesse Ventura, Kurt Angle, Jimmy Hart. Richie Steamboat, Sting, Mick Foley, Joey Stiles, Howard Finkel, and so many more. Listen live at VOCNation.com and subscribe to all the podcasts by searching Nation
2: Radio Network on your favorite podcast app. And be sure to follow these guys on Twitter at Nation. Phil After has been in the pro wrestling business for over 50 years. Hey, talking here with uh, Arn Anderson. Arn, first of all, your height and weight? 6'1", 255. And now subscribers to VOC Nation Premium get exclusive access to Bill Apter's archived audio footage. And uh, where's your hometown? Minneapolis, Minnesota. Okay, and uh, give us something about your back. First of all, your relationship to Ole Anderson. Ole is my Subscription to VOC Nation Premium starts at just $3 a month and includes commercial-free audio and video versions of our top podcasts. Okay, we're speaking here with uh, the manager of the <laughs> World Heavyweight Tag Team Champions, Tarzan
0: Tyler and Luke Ram, and he's, uh, he's sort of glowing tonight about a new prospect we haven't heard of yet.
2: And for just $9 a month, Apter's archives are all yours. Uh, would you tell us who this new prospect Well, I'll is... tell
3: you, Bill, I've searched the world, and I finally
2: <coughs> found a true world champion. I finally found... Well, you know, what's your opinion of uh, Ivan Koloff winning the title from Bruno San Martino? Well,
0: I think... Uh, I don't know what to say, but I, I want to say one thing.
2: Bruno was an LA champion. Hear exclusive interviews with the greatest performers of all time.
0: This is Bill Apter, and once again, we're speaking here with Bruno Sammartino. Bruno, first of all, how did you and Bruiser lose that title to the Valiants?
2: Well, actually, it was a, a, a very unusual loss, if you want to call it a did loss. Did
1: Didn't have anything to
2: do with it? Well, yes, but the whole thing is this, that the rules, as I always understood them, was that you, the title could only be lost by pin or, or submission, which is the same rules as uh, my title, the World War Wrestling Federation. That night, uh, it was... To sign up, it's very simple. Head to premium.vocnation.com or go to patreon.com slash vocnation. Voc Nation takes you behind the scenes of the greatest moments in pro wrestling history. Each and every Thursday night, check it out. WCW star Stro Maestro takes you on a journey. It's WCW Retro, talking old school match of the week, talking dream matches, taking your calls and looking back on an incredible career of acting, entertaining, and wrestling. Check it out, vocnation.com, WCW Retro. Be sure to call in Thursday nights, 9 Eastern, on the VOC Nation radio network. This is Matt Hardy, and you are listening to the VOC Nation.